0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. I'm back after eh, what turned out to be a little bit more than a month of hiatus in December for the holidays. The good news is that I'm back and recharged with an amazing slate of guests to come in 2021. I've also got some new equipment and editing software I'm trying out, so hopefully the podcast will sound better than ever before. This week, I bring you an interview with Charles Maines, a freelance radio journalist in Russia who works for Voice of America, NPR, and any number of other podcasts and outlets. Charles has been working in Russia for decades with the occasional return to the U.S. Yes, we talk about all the hallmarks of Russia, from Putin as a popular villain to Lake Baikal in Siberia but we go deeper on his fascination with early Soviet culture and design and some things I truly didn't know about. The story he chooses to highlight is a fascinating piece he did about music that involved directing the sounds of the city that bordered on being virtually unrecordable, but he managed to pull it off after several years of trying. Charles really tries to be more expansive than viewing himself only as a journalist, stretching the limits of audio storytelling where he can. I would argue, though, that that's a sign of a really good journalist. Life doesn't always have to be about the latest political intrigue with Putin. There are so many great stories out there that aren't quote-unquote serious journalism that end up resonating more than the forgettable news of the day. He'll talk about many of those stories, and we'll also learn what a space bridge is. So without further ado, I'm excited to present my conversation with Charles Maines, an independent radio producer based in Moscow, Russia. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, happy to be here. To warm up a bit, if you could set the scene for us, if you could tell us where you are, both the physical space around you and geographically, what time it is, and a little bit about your last week of work.
1: So I'm in my apartment in my mini studio in Moscow. I live uh, in the center of the city, just across from the zoo. If you're looking at a map of the city, you can actually hear sometimes the animals crying out. There's a particular (laughs) interesting aspect to coyotes in the zoo. Really hate the sound of Orthodox church bells. It drives them crazy. (laughs) And then the lion is the other animal that has a surprisingly deep roar unlike what I would think from like cartoons or something. Mm-hmm. And so it's about a little after 4 o'clock here, and given that it's the Russian winter already, it's already basically pitch black outside. It's snowing for the second time already this winter. Mm-hmm. And in terms of work over the last week, or at least couple of weeks, it's been interesting. Based in Moscow, you cover a lot of, of course, Russian politics first and foremost, but there's also a lot of attention to the former Soviet republics, or the CIS as it's called, Commonwealth of Independent States. And so... Interestingly enough, there's been more events recently, whether it's the war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia, or events in Belarus in particular, those have been kind of top headline stories for the past while.
0: Because I imagine most places do not have journalists in those countries, so Moscow's about as close as it gets.
1: I mean, and because of the coronavirus, it's a bit unusual because it's harder to get to these places. I mean, normally you'd jump into some of these places. And in this case, for example, if I left Russia, I wouldn't be able to return right now. So you see Russian journalists going and covering for Western outlets, the events in Belarus, say, since August, every weekend, they've had these mass rallies. And there's, of course, this big challenge to Lukashenko's pulled on power there. And it's all being covered basically by Russian journalists or journalists that are coming in from Europe and have managed to get visas to work in Belarus.
0: And just to get some sense, since you're independent this past week, I mean, if you're working on long-term pieces and can't talk about it, that's fine. But did you have to turn around any pieces this week? And what was it about? And who was it for?
1: So yes, I'm independent and working on several things. So one aspect is working with a local independent newspaper here on their podcasting. I've been trying to help them figure out ways to use their archives and make podcasts. Also doing some work covering for NPR this week. The correspondent was out for a little while and I've been filling in backstopping from them from time to time. Over the spring, I was working for them for three months. And so that was doing a bit on Nagorno-Karabakh, a bit on Belarus, a bit on Russian events here, but nothing too major. Also, a piece for Voice of America. I did a piece on, I can't even remember what it was. It's Sunday, and that all seems like a long time ago.
0: (laughs) But that gives us some idea of the...
1: Yeah, I guess the point is it's pretty scattershot, and that's, I guess, good in the sense of there's work, but it's a little bit too scattershot sometimes to even track it all. Gotcha.
0: And then a big point of the podcast is to explain how journalists got to where they are today. And I take a very, very long term approach. So the first question is, if you could just tell us where were you born, a little bit about what growing up was like and kind of your early education years, and if you showed any early interest in journalism.
1: So, I was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in the suburbs of D.C., and went out to school for a university in Iowa at a little private college called Grinnell College. Spent some time kind of playing music in bands and things like that, and was living in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis for a while. And, you know, my entry into journalism per se kind of came really through college radio. We had a college station, and we did some interview shows, and it was fun. And I think as I was trying to figure out what to do after college, while also sort of pursuing music, it seemed like it was a good excuse to buy microphones that I could use (laughs) for both. And so that really was... The entree and really when i started doing this it was this would have been around 1997 i think it was a moment where radio and public media in particular if you're talking about kind of public radio in the us they were switching over from analog to digital rather than splicing tape you were starting to use pro tools or digital audio so my idea i think initially was that as much as there was a brilliant plan it was to be the guy who mixed stuff i didn't really have a real desire to tell the stories per se. But when I arrived there, it turns out that the journalists were doing kind of everything. So they would go out and make the recordings. They would mix the pieces. They would write the scripts. They would voice them. And so you step-by-step got into the process of doing what I would call, I guess, documentary kind of feature work. Where was this? This was actually at uh, Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul. Okay, cool. And I was interning with a guy who was doing documentaries there, and he introduced me to a lot of, you know, working with Pro Tools and recording techniques and things like that. And so that was kind of an early step. But I've always been a little bit on the margins of, I guess, traditional journalism in the sense that I was interested in doing audio documentaries and radio features. First of all, it's changed over time. I mean, now I'm surprised to see that, oh, you do a lot of articles and occasionally some videos, but my heart has always been with radio. It's where I started from, and it's what I like the most.
0: Gotcha. And did you study music as undergrad or what did you study?
1: No, I was a history major and <laughs> like a lot of history majors. I realized that I was on track to be a history major. I thought, well, it's too late to get out of this. So <laughs> um, you know, I, I knew, I knew I didn't want to teach. I liked reading about things that happened. I had, you know, why am I in Moscow? I had studied Russian history in particular and, uh, and also Russian literature and got in deeper into that through the university but there is kind of an origin story here which is that my parents were actually diplomats here in 1968 and 69 in Moscow. So in my family, you know, it wasn't that I grew up with those experiences, but I certainly heard a lot about them and mm-hmm. so all these things kind of combined so I realize I'm taking you all out of the timeline but I graduated from high school in 1990 and this is the year the wall fell or 89 and 90 like we were watching events unfold as they were happening and they were historic and so My first year of university or college was when the Soviet Union was disintegrating. And it just, all the attention was there. And it was a really fascinating time. So I studied over in Moscow in 1994. I was here, I guess, for a semester at the university here in Moscow. You know, and just got enough of a taste of it and started studying Russian. And it's a 20-year process of getting better at that. Fairly fluent now, but for a long time it was not. And I mean, it's just kind of a strange ride that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, I can see why you would be interested in Russia in those years. It's also interesting to me, if your parents were diplomats, that you know, instead of looking out to abroad necessarily entirely, you look to Iowa and then move to St. Paul. I mean, I'm from Wisconsin and I'm going to go back and visit my folks in Minneapolis Uh, now. So I feel like you don't get a lot of people from Washington, DC looking to move to Iowa. So yeah. yeah, if you could just explain that part and how you ended up in Minneapolis.
1: So on top of it, my mother's side of the family is from Minneapolis. So I always grew up loving the Twin Cities and loving the Midwest. So yeah, I went from Washington or the suburbs of DC to going and studying at this little liberal arts college in cornfields of Iowa and got really into Midwest culture and music. And in some ways, Chicago and Twin Cities are the two places where a lot of stuff is happening. And so Minneapolis was always kind of a second home. And so that's where I went eventually and spent some time there. And I still love the place. So I guess it's just worked out in that I sort of grew up in the D.C. area, spent some time living in the Midwest, and then have spent a long time living in Moscow, too.
0: Right. So then you do this internship at Public Radio in the Twin Cities, and then what happens after that? <laughs> Failure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it was, um, I. yeah, I did this internship. In some ways, it was a good experience. In some ways, it was not a good experience. But I certainly learned a lot. And then went back To the East Coast, spent a year in DC. What was I doing? Got a job working as a researcher for a documentary film company. Which sounds a lot cooler than it was, frankly, but it was it was fun. It was okay. And then doing some independent pieces for public radio with kind of limited success. And yeah, I think at that point after doing it for a year, I was realizing this was not gonna go anywhere fast. And also I think there was an aspect of even though I was from DC, I'd been out in the Midwest for a good six or seven years through university, etc. And so, you know, coming back to DC, you know, young whippersnappers, (laughs) (laughs) these guys are all like going to Georgetown or George Washington or wherever in American university, they were knee deep in their 17th internship and seemed to have a real advantage. I mean, I just couldn't crack through. So whether it was trying to work with some organization or a media outlet, I was finding it very difficult. So I, at some point, was looking at going to university for a graduate degree, and oddly enough, it was in Scotland. So there was an MPhil program there that mm-hmm. I was looking at for Eastern European Russian studies, and part of me kind of was nagging this idea that it sounds, you know, a little insane to go study Russia in scotland <laughs> so I, I decided to go and visit friends in moscow before just to kind of check in with the place and it was right after the august 98 financial crash here so mm-hmm. within a couple of days i was already doing freelance pieces and that just was enough to make me doubt that maybe the university was the right path at that point so i told them i'd wait a year and then i don't think they ever wrote me back and so I was here working for a couple of years as a young journalist. And that was really my exposure to doing journalism in the traditional sense, like for different outlets under deadlines.
0: I mean, back then, was it mostly public radio or who would you work for? And did they get in touch with you or did you get in touch with them and they were just like, oh, you're there. Great.
1: It was a mix. It was a mix. Some people would find out you're there and they'd track you down. Uh, Russia was obviously in the headlines. It seems to always be in the headlines to some degree, but, you know, these were the late Yeltsin years, it was a pretty chaotic place. For those who don't know, so Boris Yeltsin, the previous president before Putin, was infirm, not a particularly healthy man, an alcoholic. You know, the whole place was sort of constantly in chaos, which is part of Putin's appeal. So yeah, we're working for public radio in the US. But I also, I worked for an outlet called Feature Story News. It's owned by a guy named Simon Marks. And his partner at the time, I don't think she's still involved. What Feature Story did that was smart was they essentially were hiring up young journalists and arranging as kind of like a warehouse for people wanting coverage about the Soviet Union, a former Soviet Union. And so he would pay salaries to young journalists, and it was decent enough money, and then finding all sorts of people who wanted to connect in. And so you would find yourself working for the strangest... You know, media outlets. I remember there was, yeah, of course, there was public radio in the U.S. and he had some steady contracts with, for example, South African Broadcasting and Deutsche Welle and some others. The Radio Vatican <laughs> um, that was another one, and then some really odd ones like the British Armed Forces Broadcasting Service, where it would be these. An old British guy sitting around a fire talking about military strategy. Or it would be some commercial podunk station in the southern part of the U.S. Who would just ask you if you could find toilet paper and blue jeans and, you know, like all these kinds of <laughs> like old tropes from the late Soviet Union. Yeah, so you get these really, really diverse and sometimes very funny clients that you would work for. And it was sort of a client relationship. They were appealing to you as their correspondent, but in reality, you were working for feature story and then exporting out news to whoever wanted it. Huh.
0: So it's like an interesting business model. Is that place still around? Well, you know what was interesting about it?
1: Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I think so. I don't know about their Moscow bureau. I know they have a DC bureau. And what was interesting, though, is at that point, and in Moscow anyway, you had, you know, this is the era of the major networks in the US. So you had NBC and ABC and CBS, and they had, at least NBC, I remember, had this like round-the-clock bureau with people just monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. And you can see, in some ways, what Feature Story was very smart about was very much a light-footed approach to coverage. So it was one camera guy, two journalists in the office, and you just covered everything. Or maybe three, I don't remember exactly what the exact amount of people were, but it was a small office. And then you'd compare it to some of these big networks who were just throwing tons of money at this. Of course, this was also like the old school correspondent package with like a pad and you know, all this all right. stuff. it almost doesn't exist anymore. But it was also just this huge staff of people just monitoring news all the time. And you look to today and now they're back to essentially what Feature Story was doing 20 years ago, which was they've got a camera guy, a correspondent, a driver and a producer. And that's about mm-hmm. it.
0: Mm-hmm. You said you did that for a couple of years. So that's not where your current timeline in Russia starts. So then what happens after that?
1: Yeah, I left after a couple of years. Future Story started losing money. So that occurred. And for other reasons, I decided I just want to go back to the U.S. for a while. And like always, it's always involves a woman. So anyway, so yeah, I was back there for a while. And then I did a little freelancing. A girlfriend was finishing up a graduate program. So I was really trying to spend time with her. I don't know about you, but I've had... Good jobs. I've had a lot of really bad jobs. So working in friends' restaurants, we eventually moved up to the Twin Cities, and there I had a job working with a little NGO that was doing kind of exchanges with former Soviet republics. It was kind of like on the, I guess it would be the State Department or USAID food chain towards the bottom, but you were implementing programs kind of like a shadow programs so belarusian like oh here's a good example like moldovan librarians came and they got to spend some time with minnesotan librarians (laughs) and they would job shadow in hennepin county library and get to see how they were approaching some of these issues so there were some really funny and kind of fun moments with that job and it was a good chance to use russian i was sort of afraid of losing it having kind of spent some time building it up was oh and i was also working with It was a kind of a... Minnesota Public Radio was strange. First of all, it's a little bit like a university in the sense that everyone has tenure. I mean, nobody ever seems to leave. So there are not very many jobs there. And so there certainly wasn't any place for me. But he was... I guess more aggressive from a business standpoint. So he also had another part of their umbrella organization that was actually for profit. And that included an AM radio station that played oldies out of downtown Minneapolis. And so I had a job on the weekends Doing like the four a.m. shift, reading news, <laughs> weather, and playing like Rat Pack stuff. Huh. So it was fun. I mean, I'm kind of a night owl, so it was really torturous for me to uh, go to bed at two and get up at three. <laughs> it wasn't very It wasn't a very healthy lifestyle, but it was fun. It was fun, and so I did that as well. So I was working for this NGO, and I was working as sort of a radio DJ news announcer on the AM station for the elderly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How long did that go on for, and what, at what moment do you go back from there to Russia, or how does it go?
1: The advantage of that job, actually, strangely enough, that job actually played a direct role in me getting back to Russia, because you would play set lists of, like, Acker Bilk, and I was talking about, like, Dean Martin, and various jazz and, like, 40s Rat Pack kind of stuff— And so when I wasn't reading the news or the weather announcements or back announcing what we just heard, I could, on Sunday, I think I could read the Sunday New York Times from, like, (laughs) from front cover to the end. Like, there was enough time to do that. So there was a lot of downtime with no one else around. I mean, it's just me in a booth with, like, a jug of coffee. And so... I started doing, at some point, some research. I was writing grants for this NGO, and I thought, I wonder if there's a grant I could get for me, (laughs) (laughs) because we are winning some of these grant tenders. And I found there was a Fulbright. The Fulbright program is a great program. It's generally targeted towards academics. But it turns out that there's a special category for journalists and for artists and writers. So I looked at that. And this is in my probably listening to Acker Bilk (laughs) for the 15th time or something. So I was doing some research on this and I realized that there was a way to apply for this grant. So I ended up applying and it's sort of like you throw a stone in the pond and it makes a little echo, but you have no idea. I mean, a whole year passes before you, you basically forget that you applied by the time they get back to you. And so they got back to me a year later, I think it was, or something close to that, and told me I was a finalist, and so I had some interviews, and then ended up getting this Fulbright grant to come to Russia. And so I did that, and this was I think, 2005. You know, I'd missed the place, and I was also really excited to do something different. It was working with, there was a radio foundation here that was working primarily with independent radio stations in the regions of Russia. So a lot of Siberia and the Far East and the Urals in the North. Yeah. So we worked with them for several years and we had gotten into some interesting projects. So it was working with this radio foundation and it was kind of the flip side of what I'd been doing before, which was working for Western media and sort of hanging out with a Western journalist scene, I guess. And this was more like working at like a community radio station in Moscow. And so all my colleagues were Russians and great people and was sort of like a big family. And it was very much internal. We weren't looking to promote work out to the US, for example, or Europe, but it was working inside Russia.
0: So it was the grant very specific?
1: I had come to them. I'd pitched this idea to work with independent producers on joint projects. So I wanted to meet people that were making radio in Siberia or the Far East and see if we could come up with ways to collaborate. And I think the idea was also to sort of bring some of those stories and those issues to Western audiences at some point. It didn't quite work out that way, but I wouldn't say that I totally blew it off. It was more like, first of all, I realized that there weren't a lot of independent radio producers. So that concept was kind of missing. FNR had a conference series that they ran, kind of a radio festival series throughout the regions where they would judge on quality standards for best talk show, newscast, reports, things like that. And I went out to those and would meet people and I would give a little presentation on the indie producer world in the US and you know how it worked and what it meant to freelance and say like look, look if you want to talk to me about doing projects. And so you know people would trade ideas, but a lot of them we ended up kind of getting into other things later that involved podcasting and so some of it kind of worked out in its own strange way. Yeah, I imagine it's a
0: really good way to get to know the Russian radio scene very very well. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if you've been in Russia since then, it's a good stretch of time. If you could just give me, I guess, the highlights. How did this
1: work? I went on the Fulbright for a year, then came back to the U.S. for a year. Then this was right, kind of that first wave of podcasting. So I think it was 2006 or seven. There are a whole series of events happening here. But this is when there's sort of early portions of Putin's arrival that were reasonably liberal. Reasonably. Um <laughs> And that started to change very much so around 2005. And so FNR, for example, had like a gentleman's agreement to air what I would call public radio style reports on social issues and important environmental issues on Radio Russia, which was the national broadcaster. And that agreement was rescinded, I think, in 2005. And so we got interested in the idea of podcasting as kind of an alternative. And, you know, and and, and the Internet is the most free platform for information here, and still is, or was then, and still is. So anyway, we had this idea to try and get funding for a platform for podcasting, and we did. So I worked on that, and we ended up launching a platform called Podstancia, which means substation in Russian, but has the pod board in it, which is clever. Um, <laughs> so we did that, and it had some positive elements to it and, and other parts that didn't work so well. But it was an interesting playground for people to post work and talk about it. So this little community of, I don't know if you want to call them independent producers, but something like that have appeared from that. And so I worked on that. At some point, I switched to working also with another organization called Eurasia Media. And they were doing development work, but focused on newspapers. But this was at a moment where the internet, of course, was just upending everything in terms of how to approach news coverage and multimedia and the rest of it. So we ended up, we had a program that was State Department funded, I think. But basically it was trying to show independent media, both radio and newspapers, how to kind of adapt their newsrooms to the changing digital news environment and working with multimedia. And so we had them actually brought these two sides together. So I was overseeing that. And it was interesting because in Russia... Whereas, you know, in the U.S., like newspapers just folded. I mean, they just got killed by the Internet and Craigslist and the rest of it. In Russia, it was such a slower process. You learn from those experiences and apply lessons from that to how they were doing news. Like everything was happening in slow motion. So if there were a small newspaper in a small town in the Urals, and small, I mean like I don't know, 150,000, 100,000 people, they still had old ladies who still bought the newspaper and they were the most legitimate source of local news and muckraking style news. And yet you also had younger people who wanted the same thing, but weren't going to buy the newspaper and they wanted digital. So they were finding ways to adapt to that, but much more in slow motion than compared to the U.S.
0: So how do you get back to what you're doing now? At what point did you go back to full-time producing pieces
1: So I was working in in this media development for several years and, you know, I think there was a moment where even though we were producing stuff and so, for example, with Eurasian Media, we did some sort of run and gun kind of documentaries about small town elections that were really fun to work on with my colleague and friend. So we were making stuff, but, you know, I was talking about things that I did or used to do more than I was doing them and I missed doing them. And so... If you sort of go back to that period, I remember talking to friends like, I'm definitely going to change something soon. And what ended up happening actually was uh, Russia changed before, before I did. They basically outlawed NGOs and funding for NGOs. And so a lot of these outfits were closed down or certainly cut back. So you know I had a moment where I thought about I could keep doing this maybe in New York or DC and you know, that'd be interesting I suppose but I just missed making things and so I went back to freelancing full time in I think 2012 not really with a plan I guess it's been 8 years I went back to freelancing and you know in my head that meant you're doing Russian news of course and there's always stuff happening here and it's a good story to cover at the same time I was pretty determined to embrace a wider world of audio work. On top of the reporting, I was doing some sound design, working on some audio docs, and some podcasts with friends, and a little bit of music. And It was just a real weird mix of things because I wasn't really sure which one would stick. And I suppose the journalism one is the one that helps you pay the bills, but the other ones are more fun in other ways.
0: Gotcha. I guess I've got a couple more general Russia questions. So you've gone back and forth to Russia since 1994. So you have a longer term view on it. I was just curious how it's changed over that time. And in particular, it seems like the Soviet Union broke up. There was this air of hope, but at the same time chaos. And then it seems like Russia now is maybe not as different as everybody thought it might be. It seems with Putin and everything, it's very similar. So how do you view that? I used to say to
1: people that Russia was kind of like opera, like it was, like, yeah, it was full of heroes and villains <laughs> and and a lot of people stuck in between, right? Of course, not everyone's a hero, not everyone's a villain. And that aspect is still there. It's changed. But I think that the issue for me is that when I first came here, I was different. My understanding of the place was different. And so it's been a really hard thing for me to, in some ways to track, even though I've witnessed chunks of time here. And again, I would emphasize I go back and forth. So it's kind of like checking in from period to period. And I feel like when I was first trying to understand the place, my Russian wasn't that great. And I was looking from the outside. And then over the last several years, when I started working with Russians and traveling the country, I got a very different view because when I was working as a young journalist here, I was stapled to my desk in Moscow and get out for little stories around town, but we really weren't traveling. And then when I was spending time working for these Russian organizations, we were all over the place. And so I'd find myself in just the wildest spots. And so Russia's this strange country that can send rockets into space, but also can't build a road in some towns, or there's places where there's no plumbing or a single light bulb. So you can do a lot of time travel in this place. And it's also, it makes it really fascinating. In terms of the shifting political winds, yeah, I mean, there was a moment, I think, when I was a student here where a lot of optimism, and certainly a lot of goodwill towards Westerners, that shifted a lot. I think what I'm struck by with the Putin era is just how cynical it is. Russians always have had a healthy level, I thought, of cynicism, but I think it's getting maybe unhealthy at times. And to add to that and just not put it all in Russia, I think that one of the strange things of working in journalism and also media development is a lot of these programs working with media are really designed to help Russia become more like the U.S. or the West. And if we judge the Trump years and the recent U.S. experiences, I would argue that it's almost the other way around. The U.S. looks a lot more like Russia these days in terms of the media environment and the bifurcation and tunnel vision of people getting their news from different outlets. And, you know, you can blame some of that on the Internet, I suppose. But in terms of cable news today, it resembles Russian news, to my mind, during the Putin era. You had people affiliated with certain parties or certain candidates. So I think it's a strange mix of things.
0: And I mean, for China, the politics has changed. Towards the end there, it was interesting how all these political changes and the atmosphere shift. There's a lot of important work to be done there, but China used to be a lot of fun. And I feel like it is not a fun place to live anymore, necessarily. It's more of a hardship posting these days.
1: This is actually one of the really interesting things about Russia today, or certainly Moscow, is that the politics are really tough, sometimes you know, deadly. But the city itself has probably never felt more European in some ways. It's a kind of an imitation Europe. And there was a great moment, a friend of mine who used to work for the LA times for a while. And is kind of a filmmaker type. He, he was visiting and he was walking around. We're in downtown Moscow and there's this pedestrian walkway and people are out and there's cafes and everyone's having a good time. And it's a summer night, I suppose, or maybe early fall. And it's like, it's more Europe than Europe. And that's kind of the point, you know, (laughs) it's really to deliver on that front to the Russian capital, at least to Muscovites. And there are a whole lot of reasons behind that. I mean, you could say it's okay, they just want to do good by their citizens. You could also say there's smart politics, because when the places parks are nice, and the streets are clean, and things kind of run more or less smoothly, it makes it that much harder for the opposition to say this isn't working. And so Russia is a strange place in that way, because you can and depending on where you are in society and your own personal experiences, the state can feel really intrusive and abusive, or it can feel kind of invisible to people. So, And plenty of people switch sides in an instant. They think everything's fine until the state comes for them, and then their whole worldview shifts
0: instantly and yeah i shouldn't speak for all of china i'm sure there's some people having fun there still <laughs>
1: yeah i mean like i just had i ran into a guy the other day who was trying to make the case to me that russia was the freest country on earth and <laughs> and he's like a high-end furniture designer type who only he makes it i think he buys it but he sells to like high-end clients. So it seemed like he was doing okay with his business. And he'd spend some time in France and some time in Italy and some time here and there. And he's saying, you know, in Russia, I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and the thing is, you can until you can't. <laughs> that's That's the unique aspect to Russia.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Maybe not only Russia, but certainly Russia. Everything's possible until suddenly it's not.
0: Right. Yeah. Like the state is either completely not paying attention to you, or it's completely breathing down your neck. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you are going against the grain of politics, or like we see with opposition figures, or or if it's like gay rights, or someone, you know, Russia's a very conservative place, so they promote conservative values through the government. And so people that go the other direction with that, whether it's ethnic minorities, or gay rights, or migrant rights, I mean, all this stuff, I and mean, they just get, it's really tough for them.
0: Right. The other question I wanted to ask, which I don't even know what the question is, is just that Russia and the USSR used to be such a focus, definitely for decades, the number one focus of American media abroad. And obviously, it's not like that anymore. And I don't know, I guess I'm just curious what you think about how Americans view Russia now. Is there still residual interest from that area. I imagine, you know, coverage, the number of journalists there has gone way, way down. Where does Russia fit into (laughs) the media landscape now compared to back then?
1: I take your point, but I think that, you know, the Trump era, of course, has upended all the logic of that, right? Because... Whether there was some grand conspiracy or not, there's certainly a lot of weird stuff going on between Trump World and the Russian Federation. Right. And I've looked into some of this, and so I think in that way Russia is very much a focus of America's attention. Okay, maybe the impeachment process was over Ukraine, but it was a substitute for Russia, I think, is fair to say. And so in that sense, I think there is a lot of interest. I think in a way beyond Trump though, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it seems like the Trump era is ending, and I don't think there is any expectation that the US and Russia get along now under biden i think most russians would say probably be worse because i think there's a tendency to see democrats within the us of kind of getting a little too interested in russian human rights issues and things like that but in terms of the us and how americans view russia i mean i think you're right there's a bit of that nostalgic cold war foe strangely enough i think after 9 11 having russia reappear as you know quote enemy or opponent and also seeing putin flashing around new nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles and things like that. You know, on the one hand, it is threatening. On the other hand, I think there's a certain comfort in an enemy that you kind of understand and kind of even trust. I don't know about you, but it, you know, the idea of Vladimir Putin launching missiles at the U.S. doesn't keep me up at night. Right. But I think that the idea of some extremist, Of whatever ideology getting access to a a dirty bomb, a suitcase bomb, like that does. And so I think in some ways there's a certain comfort in the security apparatus, maybe from both sides, to having this sparring. And from the Russian side, I just add one other thing, which is that they like this. (laughs) The one... Even though the focus on Russia throughout the Trump administration really ruined any chance of any kind of detente, and, and Trump wasn't the first guy to come in and say, let's get along with Russia. This is what Obama did. It's what Bush did. All of that was kind of torched by all this stuff around the elections, and maybe rightly so. I don't know. What was interesting is that Russia, in some ways, they liked being put back on par with the U.S. as like a global Cold War era standoff. And so I think they like the respect and sort of fear associated with that at the same time. It's not particularly helpful for, for getting things done.
0: Right. It's pretty interesting. And you're right. Yeah. Russia has stayed very salient in the news. I guess the main difference is just the media. And we we don't have huge bureaus anyplace really anymore. Maybe China, maybe.
1: You're absolutely right that, I mean, this is also part of a larger cutback in news staffing and global coverage, international news. but, But I do think there was a moment where Putin, for me, it's, I don't know when You know, Putin always had the KGB background. We already knew that from the very beginning. And there's a moment, though, making him out to be this sort of global villain Mm -hmm. uh, became part of the biography. And I think Russia plays to that. I mean, I don't think it's just that the U.S. vilifies Putin. And there's certainly some evidence to say, well, okay, we can't prove that he poison Navalny or this other opponent of his, Nemtsov or butkovsky And there's a whole list of these people who've either died or have been attacked. And it's a feature of the Russian environment, whether it's Putin giving the order or not. And so part of that is if he really is in charge, as he likes to pretend, then why is this happening if it's not him giving the orders?
0: And yeah, I get that. Russia, maybe Putin doesn't mind being vilified at some points, because in some ways, it's almost viewed as a strength, I think, that Russia or whatever country is strong enough that They don't have to play nice with the US and they can meddle in these things. And I understand how some domestic audiences like, yeah, who cares about human rights? We like that Russia or where our country is viewed as strong and like can go toe to toe with the US. So,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's probably his biggest selling point or certainly among his big selling points to the Russian public. He's not particularly good at domestic politics. The list of problems here is just enormous but he's been able to control the media and massage his image. And maybe most importantly, the thing actually I think he is really, really good at is poking a thumb in the US's eye. The argument kind of never changes. It's sort of the same stuff, but he's done it for a long time. And it just plays to a a resentment, kind of a post-Empire resentment that's lingering. And a lot of this has to do with, the end of the Cold War and how that was handled, the expansion of NATO, and just the behavior towards Russia. So he's basically appealing to a feeling that's there already. He's just smart enough to know how to exploit it effectively. Right.
0: Okay. Well, that is the biography section, basically. So next we'll talk about stories. I like to end on a high note. First, I usually ask about a story that got away. If there's any story that didn't come off for whatever reason that you wanted to do, whether you couldn't sell it, couldn't get an editor to agree to buy it. You couldn't, you know, convince the person you needed to talk to you. You couldn't prove it. What have you. Um, does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm in the middle of one, (laughs) unfortunately it's a story. I don't want to give too much away, but it involves a murder from about 40 years ago. And I found someone who has splayed me with all sorts of details but insists it's all off the record <laughs> all the time so so i've been in kind of this so far fruitless hunt to prove to him that i know more than he does which may or may not be true so that at least he's willing to open up on the record And that's been the one that's really been frustrating for me because I'm sure if I can convince him, I think that there would be interest in the story.
0: Right. But it's a matter of convincing him you have enough
1: to... I don't know if he's teasing me. I don't know. But at the very least, he can provide some background details that would be interesting. But he seems to claim that he has a lot more information than is publicly known and proof of it, but doesn't want to share it. It'll describe it, but he doesn't want to go all the way with it. And doesn't seem that interested in the publicity. But for me, it's a story that I happened on and was researching on my own and was trying to find new leads and stumbled on this guy. And so it's been frustrating that he's not as excited about the story as I am. I mean, I would like to do it.
0: And it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work without this guy.
1: Uh, You could do it, but it would be nice if he was in this because there's a suggestion here that the story as it's known now is not correct. And so... I'm not sure if he's right about the things he claims, but I'd be interested to hear him out, but also see proof. Right.
0: And yeah, I imagine it's the kind of thing you're doing for audio. And I always wonder if we have it easier writing text articles that there's various ways to use off the record information in text and kind of cobble together a story. But I imagine for audio, the best thing is to get this guy talking on a microphone.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just starting to pivot my thinking about this. I was A little disappointed, but thinking, well, if I can't get him to talk to me, then I can't get him to talk to me. But maybe he'd be willing to, if we really limit the scope of what we're talking about, he'd be willing to provide a little bit of text that I could use and then I could do an article instead. So for me, again, it's like the article would be the less preferred option, just as someone who started Like I just prefer working in radio if I can and doing podcasts or stories. And I think that would be the most interesting, but if he's not willing to talk, he's not willing to talk. So maybe we can find some other alternatives. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, the other possibility of winning this guy over is to come up with something that he doesn't know and sort of say like, okay, I'll meet you halfway. Here's something that you didn't know and let's continue talking. So I'd trying to do some work in the archives here and not having a whole lot of luck and there's the virus and the rest of it. So it's complicated now.
0: Yeah. Some horse trading to get him to come around. And that's just to, you know, give a sense of some of the difficulties in journalism onto a story you're proud of. So if you could pick a story you're proud of and tell us a little bit about what it was and how you went about doing it from start to finish.
1: I did a radio feature, maybe a little like mini doc runs about 15 minutes, maybe less, maybe 13, I don't know. And it was, you know, we were talking about how I had this interest in music, and so I've done several projects involving music, and one of them revolves around the story that I heard about an avant-garde composer named Avramov. There's a picture that I came across where he was waving flags on the top of a building in Moscow in 1923. Three, If I'm not mistaken, I have to go back and check. And what he was is he was conducting what was called the Symphony of Sirens. And essentially it was this avant-garde musical composition where he was trying to conduct the city as an orchestra. Like think of factories as being like a horn section or something. And boat sirens as being like the soloists or whatever. And so he had this crazy idea and he did several experiments of this in Baku, in Azerbaijan, also in Moscow. And so, I did some research in the archives here a while ago, and I thought, "Oh, this would be such a great radio piece or story and I mean, I found some information, some of it was legend there were people you could talk to, but I just wasn 't sure like how to make this happen and ended up coming back to it after several years of setting it aside and part of the luck of it was there was a young composer here in Moscow, actually from Petersburg who'd done a recreation of it and so there was some kind of source material to work with him hear his version talk with him talk with historians and there was just kind of a question of like how do you piece this together and i ended up doing kind of a noir style mystery trying to solve this you know what did it sound like and it takes you into some fun places and it was a real chance for me to use some of these experiments with sound technique that I was using or kind of playing around with at the time. And so I was happy with how that one turned out. And for me, it brought together some little lines of thinking that I'd been working with for a while. So yeah, I was really happy with that one. And it ended up finally running on 99% Invisible, which is this podcast by Roman Mars on design, but in a really, really wide sense of the word. So yeah, I was really happy to have that one go out. I think what pleases me about it was that it was a story that I heard a long time ago thought about doing, didn't think I could do it, came back at it again later and finally did it, but within like maybe an eight year period, Whoa, <laughs> it yeah. was like a ridiculous amount of time. I mean, I just thought, no, I don't know. I don't know how I can make this happen. And then finally, all the elements, including my own sort of growth as like a sound engineer and someone who can mix. And it all sort of came together. I was happy in that sense. It seemed like a personal achievement, I guess.
0: So did you end up being able to stitch together siren sounds and city sounds into something that
1: yeah i mean the story kind of becomes the hunt I, mean, I think it's also an example of where you can have a difficult story but make the hunt for the story or the answer a lot of the piece so in this case yeah i framed it as me trying to solve this mystery and so discovering this composer who put together kind of a version of this and we had this little walk together and we play some of his piece and he gave me some of the sound files that he'd worked with and assembled and he's this guy Sergei chismatov is his name he's a really talented young russian composer so all these things kind of came together in ways that wouldn't have expected i guess
0: that's great that's great i can throw up a link to the piece in the show description cool So the next section is the lightning round. They're uh, faster paced questions, but feel free to answer at whatever length you want. Do you feel ready? Sure. Okay. The first question is, what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day? And I mean more for work purposes to keep up on the news you need to follow for your job.
1: Well, from the Russian media market, I think probably the one I'd recommend would be Medusa, which also has a great translator editor who does a lot of the work in English as well, which is a big plus too so some of their big investigations you can actually see in English and read in English but yeah I mean they have a little bit of their own investigative unit also they're really good as a compilation of what's happening and yeah they're just fast and definitely like a must check-in if you're looking for Russian politics and news and and also just kind of fun weird stories from Russia
0: that's a great name Medusa like from Greek mythology
1: Yeah. And the reason Medusa also, there's an interesting backstory here where actually it's the team of people who are working for something called Linta.ru, which was a very successful online news outlet in Russia. They were taken over like many of the independent news places are in Russia. And so they actually fled and they're actually not in Russia now. They're in Latvia, in Riga. And so they're based out of the country, but they cover Russia extensively. Interesting. It's a little funny that I'm saying, you know, the quickest place to get news about Russia is actually from a website in Riga. <laughs> you know, it's like, It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I mean, there are other good sites, but I think what they've done really well beyond their own investigative unit, they're also just as a, an aggregator. That's the word I'm looking for. They're a, a very good aggregator of other stuff that's happening. And so they seem to kind of put that all in and also have just a little bit of an indie spirit to them, which means they pick up on weird stories in the Russian underground or recommend new hits in the Russian indie music scene and things like that, and with a real sense of humor, too.
0: Sounds great. And then the next question is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? So any medium.
1: Colbert keeps me sane through the Trump years. I think he's done this kind of incredible job... I don't watch all the interviews, but I think his monologues are pretty phenomenal. And he can sometimes come across as a little bit too much of a Boy Scout for my personal taste. But on the whole, I think he's just been kind of an amazing source of calm during the Trump years as I'm watching events in the U.S. I think from Russia, yeah, there was a friend of mine produced a pretty cool, well, the the kind of the big native tech company here is called Yandex. So they're kind of like the Russian Google. Mm Mm-hmm. And they've been getting into podcasting. And a friend who was working for them at the time, he convinced them to do a reboot of the NPR Star Wars play. This is the Star Wars A New Hope done as a radio play, and that, which is worth hearing oh. anyway. It's also you can find that. But it's all in Russian. So they bought the rights from Lucasfilm or from Disney or whoever it now has it. And so you've got all the original like R2 and C-3PO
0: and everybody. But now it's all done in Russian. and <laughs> It's really fun. <laughs> That's sort of an entertaining ride. That's great. That's funny. Cool. And then what is the best journalistic article piece, again, in whatever medium that you've consumed recently?
1: Since we've been talking a lot about audio, and I'm sort of a proponent and defender of audio, I had worked on a podcast last year with my friend Julia Barden. It was a podcast series called Space Bridge for Radiotopia, which was looking at kind of citizen diplomats and these kind of weirdos from both sides of the Iron Curtain who were trying to hack the Cold War and prevent nuclear Armageddon. And it had a very, or we're trying to do this very 80s feel. And I'm really proud of it, but I, I have to say that there was another podcast that came out recently that I really, really loved, and I just listened through. The whole thing binge-listened right away, and it was called Wind of Change. The host is a New Yorker writer, Patrick Radden Keefe. It's by Crooked Media. And it basically explores this rumor that he'd heard, apparently a well-sourced rumor from a friend, that the Scorpions hit Wind of Change which reflected a lot of the democratic changes going on in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, that this, in fact, was a CIA plant. The CIA had written this song and helped distribute it to the Scorpions, who then made it a worldwide hit and changed the world. And so it's a real fun listen without giving anything away. And it just gets into these ideas of soft power and just takes you into some weird directions involving heavy metal and hair and drugs and booze and stuff. So it's fun.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And Space Bridge, too. I'm into the retro 80s thing, so I'll check that one out as well. And then, is there any particular subject matter you consume a lot about that isn't specifically related to your job?
1: I kind of have an interest in music, which we mentioned before, and it does find its way into the work, like reading about it and learning about it. Design is another one that I just find myself kind of getting into and learning about. For example, recently I've just been obsessing with Soviet mid-century design, which in certain places is really innovative. For a long time, I was really interested in the constructivist movement in the Soviet Union in the 20s, and I still think it's like the most fantastic period and worth exploring, but I hadn't realized how much cool stuff was being made and cool designs from Eastern Europe and communist Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the 50s, 60s and 70s that somehow it kind of passed me by. So that's been sort of a recent obsession.
0: Cool. Did brutalism come out of Russia? Where did that come from? Because I don't know if you know.
1: I don't know there's a lot of, I mean, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess when you say that you mean some of the Soviet architecture. I mean, that's pretty brutal. (laughs) There's some really...
0: (laughs) Because like I'm from outside of Madison and Wisconsin, and for some reason, brutalist architecture is very prevalent on their campus. And also at Northwestern, our library and our student union was this, and it's kind of this grim style that I, I don't know that it holds up that well that I'm like, is this pleasant? I don't know. Um,
1: yeah, it's funny, because like I have a computer in front of me, so I was just looking at it, and they say it emerged in Great Britain in the 50s. But I'm looking at these structures, and they look to me like Soviet structures from a little bit later. It has that overwhelming, morose kind of quality that some of these Soviet buildings contain.
0: Now, I don't know if I particularly like it or not, but it definitely makes an impression.
1: I was going to say, I mean, Moscow is interesting that way. It's a town of constant reinventions. You have some of the Soviet brutalist heavy architecture and oh, feels a little bit like Gotham City or something. And But at the same time, you have these other new buildings crop up all the time and some of it's cheap and you'll look and you'll see something new and it seems like a skyscraper got put up in a week. It's slowed down. They don't have the money these days, but somehow the city seems to constantly you know, reinvent
0: itself a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been to Moscow. I'm trying to remember the architecture. It's not uniform. That's the thing. It's not at all uniform. Right.
1: You know, you have these crazy experiments go on where even, I think it was the previous mayor, tried to create kind of a skyline. He had this idea it would be a business center for the world. And this is where Trump tried to negotiate when he thought he was losing. He tried to negotiate a Trump Tower there. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is like this really like glassy, gaudy thing. But it's also very, very Moscow in its own way. And that's sort of more recent stuff. But that sort of Soviet, I don't know if they call it brutalism here or not. They call Sovok, kind of insulting word for Soviet. There's a lot of Sovok.
0: And yeah, it's a cool place for architecture with all the mishmash from the palaces in Russia and the churches to, you know, the Soviet era stuff to now the crazy mishmash of postmodernist stuff going on there. Yeah. Whereas you go to St. Petersburg and it's like very, very orthodox, all classic uniform. Although I love that city too, actually.
1: It's a great place.
0: Yeah, I wish I had a better sense. I I took the Trans Siberian across from Beijing to Moscow and I feel like I got off. And it was kind of like my head was spinning. (laughs) I don't know that I formed very coherent feelings about either St. Petersburg or Moscow. You know what? I've
1: always wanted to do that and I've never done the Trans Sib And I would love to, I remember once I was going with a friend, a Russian friend. We were taking a trip to Baikal together, to Lake Baikal. And I was like, let's take the Trans-Siberian. And she's like, why? We can fly there in five hours and like see much cooler shit (laughs) and then like like, get out and just sit in a train. And for her, like the idea of the experience is like not appealing at all. And I can totally get it why she takes that point of view, but I still feel like I should do it at some point.
0: It was fun. Initially, I was going to do it with my friend, but then he couldn't do it and dropped out. So I went with my dad. And originally I was going to go in third class, the cheapest one, and I'm just, so glad he convinced me to uh, do second class instead because you go into these third class cars and they're in the same car for nine days and it's just you would think it would be a fun party atmosphere being yeah. russia but no people take it very seriously and it's just kind of a cattle car
1: yeah in fact they're getting rid of that platzkart category the third class seats oh, really? um, yeah there's a pitch that <laughs> I've been trying to make to capture that experience as it fades because it's sort of a symbol in a way of a wealthier Russia no longer needs cattle car style arrangements to get people from here to there. And so in a way, it's a sign of Putin era progress, which they like to accentuate here. But maybe all those plans are off now because of the virus. I don't know what ever actually happened with that. But it was supposed to end the summer. Hmm,
0: hmm. Because yeah, there are similar trains in China, but somehow Russia managed to squeeze in an extra two beds like kind of along the aisle. It, it was pretty <laughs> impressive how many people... They managed
1: to pack in there. (laughs) I mean, I've taken Cart before for like an overnight, I think a maximum, like maybe a 30 hour trip. And the chorus of snoring and the smell of like pickles and sausage, it's tough. It's tough.
0: But going in, in second class wasn't so bad. And it's more about you get into a rhythm and a mindset and you kind of absorb it. And <laughs> it, time starts to blur and it's all part of the right. experience. And we only made one stop at Lake Baikal. And what a weird place that is. It's like the Myrtle Beach of Russia. It's like such a weird mishmash of not necessarily always well done tourist attractions. And no, you know,
1: Russia is really bad at tourism really. <laughs> which in a way makes it kind of a fun tourist experience but it's not always fun when you're tired or cranky and right or just like i mean don't rip me off it's just so obvious <laughs> you're trying to i don't know this
0: is a major aside uh, but have you have you been to the seal shows they do there i mean that's maybe the most I... ridiculous thing i've seen
1: <laughs> i'm trying to think i was at a, a stianka i was at some kind of museum and the seals seal swing i don't think i went to a seal show.
0: No. Yeah, it was just interesting to see this. I feel bad for the seals. It's in this tiny pool and they play saxophones and whatever, but just it was all in Russian. (laughs) I couldn't understand anything and uh and but people were the russians there were just going nuts for this like and the seal like paints a picture and people get really into it and they're like does the seal
1: really play a saxophone
0: (laughs) yeah i mean like a tiny toy saxophone and then they get it to paint a picture by putting a paintbrush in its mouth and then they get people to like bid on this thing the seal has painted and people are getting really into it. It was one of the more ridiculous things. It became like an inside joke with my dad on the trip that the woman would make this one really ridiculous gyration towards the seals to get them to do certain things and... It's such a weird, bizarre thing that I don't think I'll ever see anywhere else. And just, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because there's an island called Walhon. It's a little bit kind of in the midway, sort of lower midway portion of the lake. So from Irkutsk, you drive five hours and then you get on this little barge and that's an island. And I was there, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, and then was back last couple years ago. And boy, Chinese tourism is just blowing these places out of the water. It's just kind of incredible. I mean, the Chinese emerging middle class is just... What's weird is that they are so... I'm just guessing. I don't know. You've spent time in China, you tell me. But it feels to me like these are people making their first trip ever out of China and the culture clash with the Russians they like, do not get along and you know a lot of hard feelings over like how it all goes down and it's just they don't spend any money they are kind of ushered around in these Chinese organized tours and so locals just kind of feel taken advantage of and they're ruining the environment I mean it's not the Chinese they're ruining the environment it's that the Russians are letting this many people come but it's just yeah it's out of control yeah like it used to be you know like you and your dad or small groups of tourists would come on the Trans-Siberian and get out go see the lake or something but now they're just thousands it's just it's really out of control
0: Right. Yeah. And I can imagine the type of Chinese tourist that is choosing to go to to Russia is probably not the big spending luxury good buying Chinese tourist. Yeah. So yeah. and the bus tours are just I mean, having been to any number of Chinese tourist sites, if you're there when hordes of bus tours show up, it is the worst and that kind of much parodied droning of the Chinese tour guide who have these kind of like pocket things they hook up a speaker basically on their belt where they just kind kind of drone at people. But you can see a lot of resentment
1: from the Russian side, which goes in the face of Putin trying to pretend that they've made the shift to China as like their closest partner. I think the Russians are like, no, 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 we'd rush rather be in some charged contest with Europeans. Like they see themselves as a European civilization, but the Russian government saying, oh, our best friends are China now. And I don't believe it's sustainable, but...
0: I think China and Russia would like to get along, but yeah, culturally, they're just extremely different.
1: So you were in China for five years, you said?
0: Yeah, six, plus uh, like years before I was a study abroad student there for a year or two. Wow, cool. I guess we're a little bit off track, but I realized we'd never talked about, yeah, the strange experience in Russia and Lake Baikal. It was mostly Russians there when we went, you know, people who... Yeah, no, I just think it's, it's changed a lot. The imprint of Chinese tourism is just... I mean, it's slowed down
1: now because of the virus, but just these two sides don't get along. Part of it was the Russian government was allowing... Chinese tour groups If I think there were 10 or more visa-free travel so people were coming in basically for weekends it was kind of like a weekend trip because they had some money to burn and if you had 10 or 20 of your friends you would just go and like book a van or bus and part of it was also that I was told there's a pop song that's really popular in China or was a couple of years ago about falling in love or finding your love on the shores of Lake Baikal so all these like Chinese girls teenagers are really want to go there so it's kind of funny that's funny
0: that's funny. It's, you know, making do with what you got. Like the water is freezing regardless of the time of year, and yet there are Russians and Speedos going crazy getting in the water. I can't imagine <laughs> Chinese tourists are very into swimming in the water, honestly.
1: No, no, no. It's not the water, but just, just seeing the place. And But Baikal is so pristine that it just can't handle the waste from hotels and toilets and yeah. sheets that are washed every day. So just no one's thinking long-term and
0: it's in danger because of it. Anyhow, I guess that was kind of an aside, but let me find the next question. The next question is how do you manage your work-life balance or do you believe in it?
1: <laughs> I don't think I do it very well. I work from home. So I have a separate office where this microphone is now. And so I like have a little small studio space for mixing, editing, things like that. I'm one of these people who likes to move around when I work, but I have to say that I find it's not that healthy. Sometimes it's great when you're working long hours and your bed is a walk down the hallway, but the bleed is so big between work and home life that, you know, I don't think it's a healthy thing.
0: Sure. Yeah. And especially if you're independent freelance, there's not the set hours and all that. So it makes it doubly difficult. And then is Twitter important to you?
1: Um, I have an account, I tweet, I more even retweet. I find it interesting for news information, particularly during breaking news events. But in fact, the Russian authorities these days, if you go to protest rally or something like that, they're getting quite effective at squelching the internet during these events. So I find that even though, In theory, this information is out there. Like I really can't get access to it when I'm down on the ground. But in terms of monitoring events, yeah, it's still helpful in making contacts and finding voices. So, yeah, it plays a role. Sure.
0: If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: I was telling this story about working for this radio station in Minneapolis at these kind of wee hours. So I'd get up at 3 a.m. and go downtown and... I think it was from 4 a.m. to noon. And when it would end, there was this funny pass-off because I would announce the next show, and it was by this guy named William B. Williams, and he would start off and, you know, fine. The problem was that William B. Williams had been dead for something like thirty years, <laughs> and he was much better at the job than I was—like way, way better. Like he would—he he sounded much happier to be alive, and so he would take over. And he had this kind of amazing ability to—I mean, he wasn't a journalist, but he was kind of a host, and he would say "Hello, world," and and seem to omit. Time references. Like so he never talked about dates, he would talk about World War II events, things like that, but you never knew where he was. So he kind of exists in this bubble. But I was always curious to meet him as a colleague, sort of. But he's not quite a journalist, so maybe in terms of journalists that I admire, I, I was a big fan of the James Agee book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And also he had careers elsewhere. He was a screenwriter and did film reviews and was a poet and did screenplays and other things. But he had this amazing book where during the depression in the U.S. with the photographer Walker Evans go down to the South and they spend times with these really poor families. And it's kind of forensic and poetic in strange turns. So there are moments I remember where he lists like the contents of the cupboard, and Walker Evans says these amazing photographs and so I always looked up to him as someone who did strange take on journalism. But again, like would I want their career? I don't know. He was a terrible alcoholic <laughs> and I'm not sure I want to trade places with him. Sure. And a more contemporary example might be and again it's a fortunately sad ending, but Anthony Bourdain is you know it's guy seemed like he had the greatest job in the world, right? He's traveling around eating food and exploring cultures and politics and underground scenes and the rest of it. And we know how that ended. So, you know, I don't know.
0: Right. Yeah. Forensic is a great adjective to describe some journalism. I've never thought about it, but some journalism is definitely forensic. I'll use that word. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist?
1: (laughs) Well, I empathy, I think, hopefully. Like I'm not, I'm not the fastest, but I think I bring a certain empathy to the characters that I'm trying to interview or people I talk to. I think that for russia at least what i'm doing here i think in some ways people it's less so these days there was a time where i think people came here and they kind of checked a box on their career and it looked good and they moved on and i think my attitude towards it has been that i've learned how much i didn't know and i think i take that with me when i approach some of these stories so i think knowing what you don't know a lot is really helpful That's a good answer.
0: Uh, Out of curiosity, do you see yourself staying in Russia for a lot longer? Well,
1: I have relationships here. And so I think it'll be part of what I do somehow. I'm not sure if I'll stay stay, but I can certainly see myself coming back and forth a lot. As you know, I mean, if you're abroad and you have family in the US, it's hard to balance. And it's one thing when you're younger, but as your parents get older, it gets tougher.
0: Right. Yeah. I haven't seen my folks in a year and a half because of the pandemic and it's made it even more difficult it's just
1: tough. I mean, I remember when, you know, it used to feel like you were really on the other side of the planet. And so cut off from people when you traveled and with the internet and also just like airfare was cheaper. I don't know. I could allow myself to come back and forth on a pretty steady basis, you know, once every six months, maybe sometimes even quicker, but that's all gone on hold during this pandemic. So it's been kind of a drag, right?
0: What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? duck <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Sounds good.
0: What is one thing most people don't know about you?
1: I donated a kidney. So.
0: Oh wow. To somebody you know or
1: Yeah, to, to my father who's now dead, but so I'm going with one.
0: One kidney. Fun fact. And then what is your most embarrassing journalism related story?
1: The thing that came to mind, which I don't I don't think embarrassing is quite the right term, but yeah, I was working on a story early on where one of the first things I did as an independent, like, you know, I wasn't even really an independent producer. I was just trying to figure out how to do some work. And uh, it was learning how to cut tape at a local radio station that was still doing analog. So it was actually like with a razor, mm-hmm. you know, you'd kind of splice tape. And somehow, I still don't know why this happened, but... I was really hunting for local stories to do, and I found one that was interesting that had to do with slave quarters of the National Zoo in Washington. And I guess there was someone from the newsroom where I was splicing tape. And and anyway, I guess she was doing the same story, and so I got sort of accused of stealing the piece or something, which wasn't true, but it was kind of like a public shaming in front of people that I didn't know and not able to really defend myself and also just really, like, just starting out, and that kind of sucked. But I don't suspect that's really the aim of what you're looking for. I mean, you know, it's not like a fun (laughs) (laughs) story. I was super pissed off. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get what you mean, though. Like, I resent it to this day, but you can't win some things because I know as a young guy and trying to figure out what to do, and you're in the politics of a newsroom that you have no control over. I wasn't even a staffer. I was just a volunteer. So...
0: Right. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that all sorts of stories, like people will have the same idea. (laughs) Like it's fairly common. It doesn't mean you've stolen a story. I did a story once and somebody emailed me and was like, I was going to do the exact same story. And I'm like, I I don't know what to do with this piece of information. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. I don't know. Like,
1: yeah. And I I think in this case, it had to do more with, I mean, even if, this person who accused me of this and like pulled me aside and we had a conversation about it even if we didn't come to any kind of agreement but it was sort of done in a very public way and that stuck with me so i resented to this day but it was embarrassing more in a sort of humiliation sense but also being wronged right right
0: and then what part of the day-to-day of your job do you enjoy the most
1: well, first of all, like if you're, if you're a freelancer and you know, there are a lot of negatives to being a freelancer. It'd be nice to have a salary and benefits, and like a lot of things that, that come with a job. Right. And so one of the tricks that has taken me a long time to learn and I'm still not very good at it is that when nothing's happening, that is your vacation. You just realize that today is slow and you get to go for a walk or go to the museum or Do something you want to do that's not work-related. So that's kind of like a part of the job if you're a freelancer. I just feel like there's a moment where I used to kind of bitch about it and complain and I realized that you don't have a right to complain because it's just part of the contract. So it's like okay, yeah, it means you're really busy sometimes and you're making money sometimes and sometimes you're not. But the benefit of that is you have some freedom. I think the other aspect to this would be what I enjoy about journalism in general is that it gives you an avenue to talk to people you want to talk to. And they might even say yes, because you've got the microphone or you've got an outlet that you can work for. So it's a nice way to meet people people that you're interested in that have an impact in politics, culture, whatever. So for me, in that way, it's just opening doors. It's the job that lets me do that. I'm not so outgoing that I would just go find these people, but the job allows me to find
0: these people and talk to them. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why?
1: You know, there is this incredible essay by a Soviet avant-garde kind of poet named Vladimir Klebnikov. And it's called The Radio of the Future. And I've always loved it. It's from 1921. So he is describing the role of technology on the future Soviet Union, the new, at that point, Soviet Union, and the role of information. And I guess, I mean, maybe this is not quite answering your question because it's not really about journalists, but it's about the medium and what can be process through it. It's kind of this weird snapshot between this darkened age of no information and suddenly just fountains of culture and news and opinion-making and all this. And it has these incredible phrases. I mean, I can pull it up if you want and read you a little bit. I don't know.
0: Sure. All
1: right. So here we go. This is The Rate of the Future, Velimir Hlebnikov 1921. So I'll just read a little excerpt here. So it starts like this. The radio of the future, the central tree of our consciousness, will inaugurate new ways to cope with our endless undertakings and will unite all mankind. The main radio station, that stronghold of steel where clouds of wires cluster like strands of hair, will surely be protected by a sign with a skull and a crossbones and the familiar word danger, since the least disruption of radio operations would produce a mental blackout over the entire country, a temporary loss of consciousness. Radio is becoming the spiritual son of the country, a great wizard and sorcerer. Let us try to imagine radio's main station in the air of spider's web of lines, a storm cloud of lightning bolts, some subsiding, some flaring up anew, crisscrossing the buildings from one end to the other, a bright blue ball of spherical lightning hanging in midair, guy wires stretched out at a slant. From this point in planet Earth, every day, like the flight of birds in springtime, a flock of news departs news from the life of the spirit. In the stream of lightning birds, the spirit will prevail over force, good counsel over threats. The activities of artists who work with the open pen and brush, the discoveries of artists who work with ideas, Menshikov, Einstein, for example, will instantly transport mankind to unknown shores. It goes on and on. It's just incredible. It's this beautiful, beautiful essay. That's
0: great. It's like an ode. It's about radio, the future, but it's almost like an ode to radio in general and media in
1: general. It is, and it's got a certain, of course, utopian vision to it in terms of what information and ideas can do. At the same time, there's a slightly dark aspect to it of the sorcery, this idea of misinformation, disinformation that can kind of corrode, if not taken care of. But he also just has these fantastic phrases, and I'm just scrolling here further down, and it's a silver shower of sound. Amazing silver bells mixed with whistling surged down from above. Are these perhaps the voices of heaven? Spirits flying low over the farmhouse roof? No. <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> no. Um, that's great. Uh, cool. I'll look it up after this. Yeah, he's cool. Velomir Klebnikov, I mean, just genius. He's an absolute genius.
0: And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do?
1: Well, I tried to be a musician for a little while, and I have friends who are musicians. I think it seems like a tough, tough career, but fun. And I still have this interest in sound engineering, although I'm not very good at it, but I understand bits and pieces of it. That would appeal to me I'm trying to think. I stopped playing baseball when I was probably twelve. So that's out.
0: Well, it's qualifications aside, so whatever whatever. <laughs> right. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Sorry, I forgot that part. You know, it would appeal
1: to me. Well, at least when I was living in the Midwest, you're from Wisconsin, so maybe you'll relate to this. From the East Coast, I feel like they're not really good breakfast places to just get like coffee, you know, and just have like a really good breakfast. And in the Midwest, they just—I don't know why—but they're just really, really good at it. And I remember for a while, I always thought that like I'd be happy just doing that, you know, just open up a breakfast place, make good food, people come in, it's warm, (laughs) there's good coffee. Like, do you need anything more than that? I'm not sure. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That uh,
1: Like, D.C. is a terrible breakfast town. D.C. is the worst breakfast town for reasons I cannot fathom. Huh. Even the diners, like they're just shitty diners. They're not really...
0: My dad the other day was just talking about, because he is mildly obsessed with breakfast, about, like, how he was uh, grew up in Racine. And at one point, he knew, like, every place in town when they stopped serving breakfast. <laughs> so he knew, no matter what time of day, oh, I can probably get breakfast at X place. And... <laughs> <laughs> there were so many places that did just that
1: i'm telling you like man you know it i mean it's just there's something about these midwest towns that they've just got this down
0: i realize we've talked a long time is there anything though that we didn't touch on that you would have liked to
1: i mean i just think with the work i do i feel like i came at freelancing with the idea of well every year i think it's going to be the last year it's just keeps kind of rolling on, but every time I think it's about to end or think maybe something will change or I'll make some decision to do something else and seems to have enough momentum behind it to keep going. But that said, I, you know, from the very beginning, I really approached this from trying to stretch out and do other things. So journalism is kind of one aspect of what I do, but I really go out of my way to do not the daily grind of journalism, but also these occasional documentaries or try and do some sound design for friends multimedia efforts or something else so it's just kind of like i've been trying to embrace a wider concept of freelancing that i think has been it's not necessarily financially rewarding in fact probably the opposite but it's been fun Just i would just accentuate that that's also a big part of what i do so I feel like when we talk about journalism, it suddenly it, it sounds like it needs to be very, in quotation marks, serious. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm covering Russia and doing those kind of serious things. But I've also put a lot of time and effort into doing audio documentaries and other th- pieces that take a different tack that's very different from journalism. So, for example, I mentioned briefly, but this Radio Space Bridge series that we did was looking at the history of uh, citizen journalism. But it's much wider than what you might think for those who don't know space bridges were these televised live broadcasts between the Soviet Union and the US in the 80s and Phil Donahue for those who remember who he was uh, who he is he's still alive he teamed up with a guy named Vladimir Posner who's kind of a big broadcasting legend here and they were the hosts and it was a big household event in the Soviet Union but that's the end stage of it. Before that, you just had all these strange characters coming from the world of, like, the Esalen Institute in California, who were interested in the paranormal and were trying to find ways to, like, hack the Cold War and make connections and avoid nuclear Armageddon. So that's one example. Another one was with a colleague and friend of mine, Cicely Fell, we did one about Tchaikovsky Swan Lake as kind of a meme in Russian political culture. So every time you had these big changes at the top, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake was what they'd put on TV to waste time while they figured out what they were going to do. It's become emblematic of indecision and political tensions. And so we explore that and we did a doc for BBC through this publishing house called Falling Tree Productions in London. And, you know, so like, I'm just constantly trying to do those kind of things. And in some ways I appreciate those as much, if not more than journalism stuff that I do from a day-to-day basis because it's important. It's the quick daily record, but I also feel like I can hardly remember half of what I did a week later. I have to go back and read it. And then you were asking me what story I did last week. And I'm still not sure I remember because I was (laughs) working on Ukraine, Belarus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia. And I just don't remember what story it was.
0: Yeah, I, I get it. I would say, I mean, a lot of that other stuff is also journalism. It's just people get this idea of capital J, journalism is X. But by many definitions, what somebody like Anthony Bourdain was doing, that's kind of a form of journalism too. Some people don't Absolutely. write for publications Absolutely. like Michael Lewis, I would argue, is a journalist. But he, I mean, he yeah. he mostly writes books. hes I don't know that he's been a staffer, really.
1: You know, actually, just a uh... Get you interested in if you like Michael Lewis, my co host, producer friend from Spacebridge is the editor on his Pushkin podcast series Against the Rules. Definitely worth checking out.
0: Cool. I'll wrap up the recording by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Charles Maines an independent radio journalist in Moscow, Russia. I'll post links to some of Charles' work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at foreign pod, On Facebook, our page is Facebook.com slash pod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, January 31st. Until then, I'm Jake Spring and this is Foreign Correspondence.